gentlemen, please take your seats. The spotlight is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to the Mystery Matt Spotlight Podcast. This evening, we are continuing our West Memphis 3 uh, discussion and semi-analysis, I guess you could say. Yeah. Because we are going to be putting forth our opinions. However, they are just that, just our opinions. Uh, none of us are qualified professionals in any way. Hey, but look, in this case, it doesn't really matter. Look at me giving all the important <laughs> warnings and stuff. So since I'm at it, uh, if you're listening, <coughs> sorry, if you're listening to this on YouTube, please make sure to check out the podcast proper over on what are we? Podbean. It's on Podbean, but it Spotify, goes to Spotify, Apple. Apple. I think it goes to Google. I'm not sure. Maybe. But yeah, if you're only catching the odd one on YouTube, you should definitely check out the uh, the rest of them. Uh, YouTube, for whatever reason, flags most of them and doesn't let them through. So, anyways, and considering uh, some of the stuff we've talked about, this, these ones will probably be flagged. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. You never know. Uh, the last one that went through, I think, was "Is it cool?" So, you know, we'll see. Anyway, but that one was a good podcast. Though. Yeah. Anyways, take it away, Sarah. <coughs> okay. Well, let's kick off the part two with the Eccles and Baldwin trial. On February 28, 1994, the trial for Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin began. Paul Ford and Robin Wadley represented Jason, and Val Price and Scott Davidson represented Damien. The public was rabid with a lynch lynch mob mentality against Damien and Jason. The prosecution played on the high emotions of the jurors as District Attorney John Fogelman began his opening statements, admitting that they were relying on infernal elements, reasoning, and statements, and there is negative evidence that doesn't connect anyone. We have fuck all, so convict these two. Yeah, infernal. You see before you. Infernal evidence? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I I've never even heard that phrase before. Infernal evidence. I'm not even evidence. sure what it means. Infernal. Hellish. Elements. Hellish. Maybe. Ev- yeah. Weird. Inferential. I don't know. Anyways. Weird. So Paul Ford says the only reason Jason was arrested was due to the surmounting public pressure on the West Memphis police. They needed to arrest someone. Scott Davison points out that there are four underlying themes in this case. One police ineptitude mm-hmm. two damien eccles tunnel vision three damien eccles couldn't have been there and four the prosecutors could not prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt dana moore testifies that she saw michael at three ten after school she tells everyone that her son was in and out of the house after school and that she had seen him and stevie branch she also testifies to seeing her son with stevie and chris byers around 6 p.m going down 14th street the boy's bicycles are brought out, and she identifies Michael's bike. Dana says she sent her daughter out to bring Michael home, but she returned without him. She reported Michael missing to the police at around 8.10 at the Byers' residence across the street. On cross-examination, Dana Moore said before reporting him missing, she was looking for him in the general area and at the Hobbs's, but she never checked Robin Hood Hills, but they had stopped looking at around 1 or 2 in the morning. Pam Hobbs testified that she left for work at 4.50 p.m. and the last time she had saw, she had seen Stevie was when he left with Michael. Pam said she never knew her son was missing until 9.25 after her shift was over. And then Pam then identified Stevie's bicycle. She told the jury that after work, she searched all night, including Robin Hood Hills. 
Under cross-examination, she says they didn't cross the pipe bridge and were on the other side of Robin Hood Hills. She says she checked the apartment complex, laundromats, Cub Scout venue, and anywhere she, they could think of. Melissa Byers tells the jury that she first saw Chris around 525 to 530 and that her husband found Chris on 14th Street, brought him home, and spanked him. Melissa saw him again closer to 6 out in the carport cleaning and realized he was missing when they were about to go out for dinner. They checked the neighbors behind them and drove around looking for Chris. She confirms that Dana Moore came over while Officer Regina Meeks was there. And Dana told them the three boys were together. Under cross, she tells the defense that her husband was wearing khaki shorts and sandals. She says that she never crossed the pipe bridge and has never been inside Robin Hood Hills. On the stand, Officer Regina Meeks gets defensive during her testimony. Gee, I wonder why. I wonder why. Jason's attorney, Robin Wadley, questions Meeks and asks if she went into the restroom at Bojangles Restaurant and if she had ever found the bleeding black man. She answers both with, I did not. Damien's attorney, Scott Davidson, steps in. Davidson, do you have a report regarding this incident? Meeks, no, sir, I do not. <laughs> Wadley. You're out looking for some boys, and you're in that area, and this bleeding man, did anything go through your mind? Meeks, first of all, you got to understand that it's a different area or ward. I did not connect the two at all. Wadley, it may be a different ward, but distance-wise, it wasn't that big of an area. Meeks, no, sir, it really not. It's really not. So, wah, wah. Oh, my lord. Never put that woman on frickin' stand. Oh, dear. Never give her a case, either. Yeah, incompetent. Oh, absolutely. Talk about your ineptitude. So, so Sergeant Detective Mike Allen testified about finding the body of Michael Moore, as well as the lack of blood on the ground. He then told the court that the water around where Christopher Byers was found had a lot of blood around it. Yet none of the police reports mention this. District Attorney Fogelman holds up the knife retrieved from the lake behind Baldwin's trailer for Allen to, to identify, to which Allen responds that, is the knife found because it has the date, time, and his name on the evidence tag. Robin Wadley asks Alan on cross, how long did the search take for the knife? Alan answers, 65 minutes. Alan would not say if the knife was the murder weapon. Scott Davidson asks, on what days were Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin charged on? Alan answers, June 3rd. Then Davidson asks, what day was the knife collected? And Alan answers, November 17th. Wow, that's a big difference. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Detective Brian Ridge testifies about the conversations he had with Damien Eccles during the investigation. He told the court that Damien's favorite book in the Bible is Revelations, that his favorite writers were Stephen King and Anton LaVey, and explains that LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible. Ridge says that, that he told Damien that his fingerprints were in the woods, and Damien said they were not. Ridge continued to say there were cult activity and how it played in with the murders told the court that woods off that the woods offered a secluded setting there was a torture and overkill elements and removal of blood and mutilation of chris byers that all three victims were eight which is a witch's number so interesting fact in wicca the number eight represents that there are eight sabbats festivals and seasons they can also be seen as the beginning of a cycle um there really isn't any nefarious reasons behind this <laughs> anyways rich continues to say they were all bound and how meticulous the scene was. I don't know about you guys, but most teenage boys can't or won't clean up their bedroom. Do you honestly think they would be able to thoroughly clean up a crime scene? No. Especially a crime scene in the woods. Yeah. 
Outdoor crime scenes are hard enough to process, let alone clean up. Yeah, like one in the woods and, yeah, or think through all those things. Yeah, no. So I believe it was Ridge in Miss Kelly's trial saying that he was not an expert on any of this stuff. Yeah. Yes. So then he says, um, Ridge explains that he learned all of this information from books and police handouts not available to the public. What, in like a couple weeks? Yeah. (laughs) So... The defense begins their cross-examination of Detective Ridge and really makes this guy look stupid and inept. Damien's lawyer, Val Price, asks Ridge, why were the sticks collected two months after the murders and not at the time the bodies were found? Ridge explains that he didn't collect them and booked them as evidence until Jesse Miss Kelly's statement. Val Price immediately demands a mistrial. The mention of the confession or statement of Jesse Miss Kelly was not allowed and a mistrial should have happened. Instead... Judge Burnett dismissed the motion and just warned the detective of bringing or referring to the statement. I have a strong opinion about Judge Burnett, but we can get to that later. Yeah. Um, with motion denied, Val Prince regroups, sorry, Price regroups, and rather quickly with questions about Bojangles. <clears throat> Price, Detective Ridge, what is the date that you sent the blood scrapings to the lab to be analyzed? Ridge, they were never sent. Price, they were never sent? Ridge, that's correct. Price, where are the blood samples at this time? Ridge, I don't know, sir. They're lost. (laughs) Price, they're lost? Ridge, yes, sir. That's my mistake. I lost a piece of evidence. Fuck, just say my bad at this point, right? Yeah. This is is the blood samples from Bojangles. So how convenient that these people lose a very important piece of evidence that could be potentially destroy their theory of these three teens who worship Satan and killed three boys. Lost my ass. They likely did this on purpose. Like, they mishandled evidence. Yeah. Yeah. What else did you fuck up on? Yeah, you don't... I'm sorry, you you lose evidence like that? That is a massive issue. Like, this is Not potential exculpatory evidence. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. they lost it? And they lost it. Like, that is a massive... I bet that's you any like money a, they didn't lose it. Oh, yeah. that That's like a massive... That's not a slap on the wrist. That is a, oh, dear God, we need investigation. He should have been suspended. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, losing Paul her. Ford asked Detective Moron to describe the handling of evidence <laughs> <laughs> found with the bodies. I'm sorry, Detective Moron. <laughs> well, it seems fitting, doesn't it? Ridge explains that the clothing and shoes were wet, but they were placed in paper bags and taken to the police station to dry. They removed the clothes from the bags to air dry on the floor of Inspector Gitchell's office. Uh-huh. The next day, they were placed in paper bags and taken to the crime lab. Wet or not, they should have been taken straight to the crime uh-huh. lab. One, were they carefully placed on something to, av- something to avoid leaving evidence behind in the office or picking up something? Two, were they guarded all night as part of chain of custody? And three, why not use hangers in a rack? Yeah. <sighs> With, like, you could put, like, a sheet or something underneath them, right? To collect any evidence that might fall. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's, uh, <coughs> that is so inept and ignorant. I, I just, yeah, that's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Okay. So, remember some of the things I said about Preddy, Frank Preddy, the mm. medical examiner? Yeah. Because it's going to come up from the last trial. So, bear with me as we dive in depth into the medical examiner Frank Preddy's testimony. Prosecutor Brent Davis asked about the knife found in the lake and if the wounds on Christopher Byers was consistent with the serrated blade of that knife. Peretti said some of the wounds were consistent. Some. Some. Davis asks about the bruising on the ears and abrasions found inside one of the boy's mouths. And Peretti explained these types of injuries are generally found on children who are forced to perform oral copulation. He then adds that the lip injuries could also occur from having objects inside the mouth or from punches, slaps, or even hand placed hard over the mouth. Dr. Peretti testified that Michael Moore had defensive wounds on his hands 
fractures to his skull and water in his lungs, which indicated that he was alive when placed in the water. He described the irregular and gouging-type wounds on Stevie Branch's face, and when Brent Davis asked what have caused those wounds, Pretty answered, a knife, glass, or any sharp object. In regards to the abrasion on his forehead that was, that was dome-shaped, said it was typical of a belt with a small buckle. That he also had similar injuries as Michael Moore, as well as water in his lungs. There were no mosquito bites found anywhere on all three victims. That's a big one. That's a big one, right? Yeah. Peretti said there were no signs of strangulation, no sign that the boys had been sodomized, and there was no use of rope. The injuries could have been caused by a number of things, not just sticks. Brent Davis asks what the effects the water have could have had on the evidence. Pretty says that water could wash away semen from their anuses and that not every rape of a child leaves anal lacerations, bruising, or abrasions. But he said that in the last trial that they do. Yes. But in regards to this, I did some research. I have some very credible and authoritative figures say otherwise. Yeah. Say nurse Rachel Fisher, renowned medical examiners, Dr. Dr. Joseph Scott Morgan, Dr. Warner Spitz, and Dr. Tom, Tim Gallagher have all said on multiple cases that there's always evidence of anal rape and sodomy, especially in children. Absolutely. There's no way. Even if there's not a tearing or something, you are going to see inflammation of the tissues. Yeah. And just You're in case people something. don't know what a sane nurse is, it's a sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, okay. So Paul Ford asked about the time of death. <laughs> Stidham asked the same question right. in Jesse's trial. And Preddy tells Ford it would be a broad range between 1 a.m. to 5 or 7 a.m. And explained that he arrived at this estimate after looking at some factors such as the temperatures of the air and water, time the boy disappeared, time they were found, causes of death. And he also consulted with two other doctors who agreed. Jesse Miss Kelly's attorney, Dan Stidham, was pissed. Yes, that is completely opposite to what he said in the previous exactly. trial. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He asked Peretti three times about the time, time of death, and Peretti said under oath that he could not determine time of death. I do not blame Stidham for feeling pissed off. No, no. Now, this was this trial was how many months afterwards? It was like, like a couple weeks. Just a couple weeks. Just so, a couple weeks. So in that time, no, no. Okay, all right. Yeah. So Jesse's was finished on February 18th. This started February 28th. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like just a, like a week. Yeah. Like Ten days. Yeah, so I don't blame Stidham for being no, pissed. No, So Ford asked Peretti about the blood. Peretti says that the human body has about five pints of blood, and that would be very hard to clean. Quote, it would be quite difficult to do, to have injuries of this nature without having any blood, unquote, by Peretti. He implies the murders could have happened somewhere else, contradicting the prosecution's theory. In regards to the injuries to Christopher Byers sustained to his genitals, that in his opinion, that it would be that it would have taken considerable amount of time and surgical skill with a scalpel or a very sharp knife to do under optimal circumstances, said that even he couldn't do that in the dark in the water with millions of mosquitoes. Ford says, "If I poured five pints of blood on this floor, it would make a big mess, wouldn't it?" Pretty answered, "Yes." Ford, and it would be almost impossible to clean it up, wouldn't it? Pretty, well, you could do it, but not very easily. Ford. Does soak in the ground. Pretty. Yes, it does. Bell Price asked Dr. Pretty if he made a wound comparison with the knife from Mike uh, from Mark, John Mark Byers, and Pretty said he did. Price asked if that knife appeared to be serrated, and the answer was yes. When Price asked if the wounds were consistent with the Byers knife, Pretty admits that some of the smaller wounds could have been done with that knife. Then the prosecution brings in jailhouse informant. 
16-year-old Michael Roy Carson, who was in juvenile detention center with Jason Baldwin. Now, Carson was an avid drug user, and he was arrested for burglary, but they refused to tell the jury that he was a drug user. That was Burnett. Yeah. Yep. Which actually is goes against the pro- well, no, it goes against the def- the defense. Yeah, because it would have shown that his yeah. his testimony might not be credible. So Brent Davis asked Carson what he was in for, and he he admitted burglary. When asked if he met Jason Baldwin, he answered yes. Davis, was there anything mentioned about his involvement in the murders of those eight year old boys? Carson, yes, we was sitting there playing spades, and I wanted to get to know everybody up in there. I just straight up asked him if he did it. Davis, can you tell us about what was going on? What was going on? What was happening? Carson, why me and Jason were scraping up cards before going to our cells for lunch. And I said, just between me and you, did you do it? And he said, yes. And then he went into detail about it. Davis, when he went into detail, what did he tell you? Carson, he told me how he dismembered him. I don't remember if he said how many, just that he dismembered him. He sucked the blood from the penis and put the balls in his mouth. Well, none of that is true. Yeah. Brent Davis then asked when and why did Carson decide to come forward with this information, to which Carson said a few months, and it was when he saw the boys' families on television that he could no longer stay uninvolved. In a closed-room hearing, the defense witness, Christopher Morgan, who had a drug problem, admitted to being in the area at the time of the murders, but says that he never gave a confession to police in California. He invoked his Fifth Amendment right and refused to testify. Judge Burnett upholds this and issues a gag order that Christopher Morgan is not to be mentioned to the jury. Yet another restraint placed on the defense by the judge. Yeah. Asshole. Um, <laughs> Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell is called to testify along with DNA expert Michael DiGuglielmo. <laughs> Silly Italian name. Guglielmo. About know. the buyer's knife. Lucy, fuck off. Fogelman asks when the knife was retrieved. I mean, received, and Gitchell answers January 8th, 1994, that he received it from the HBO documentary crew who were doing a documentary on this case. Gitchell says that he noticed a substance on the knife near the hilt and sent it off for testing. He then testified that he brought in John Mark Byers to question him about the knife, who said he never used the knife, but changed his story when he was confronted by the test results, and then Byers was, why Byers claimed that he cut his thumb while dressing venison. And DNA expert Michael, what's his face, takes to the stand. <laughs> he testifies that there appeared to be blood or tissue in the crevices where the knife folds. And the DNA results determined that the blood was human and consistent with John Mark Byers' blood type, which also matched Christopher's. Lika Sakovicevich, yeah, I actually had to sound it out in my writing. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. The state crime lab technician said the fibers found on a shirt worn by Chris Byers were compared to the bathrobe collected from the Baldwins, were microscopically similar, but not the same. The fibers were common and could have been found from any household in Arkansas. She explained the differences between primary and secondary transfer. Now, this would have made more sense if Nancy was here, but we'll do it anyways. Primary primary transfer occurs like a direct deposit. For example, my hair falling from my head and landing on Nancy. Secondary transfer occurs when you pick up something up from one place and it falls off somewhere else. For example, Matt's hair falls onto my sweater and then falls off onto the floor in Colleen's apartment. Yep. So that's just a quick. There you go. Sakovicevich also talked about the knots used to tie up the victims. Michael had a combo of square knots and half hitches. Stevie had half hitches, a figure eight, and loops. And Christopher had four double half hitches. 
The origin of the Negroid hair found on Chris Byers came back as unknown. So obviously you've got somebody who knows how to do knots because I don't even know what any of those knots no, are. Like I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, so you've got somebody to do knots, but it, it, it does sound like Boy Scouts were a big thing. So they likely would have learned knots. Like so many people around there might've been in Boy Scouts and might've known that. It could also take, it could also have that the offender had maybe one or two of the boys tie up one another boy. Yeah. Who knows? You know, who knows? But yeah, they're, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a girlfriend. That's just a theory, right? Um, the what? The what? The next witness for the prosecution is a moron. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Ah, uh-huh, I know who this is. The prosecution calls to the stand an expert on the occult and Satanism who had 26 years in law enforcement, Doctor Dale Griffiths. Griffiths explains the lack of blood at the scene is because there's a life force in blood, and the younger the person, the more pure it is. The blood is taken to be used in other future rituals or for consumption. <laughs> Sorry, I have to get dramatic with this because this is so fucking stupid. Oh, yeah. With Griffiths, yeah. All right. So, the prosecution <laughs> asked Dam- uh, ask about Damien's writings and drawings. And Griffiths explains while holding up a drawing that the pentagram is white witchcraft. Most people would say white wicca. But the upside down crosses around it is black witchcraft. He explains that a book belonging to Eccles called Never on a Broomstick has a chapter that is about the rise of the devil and it has underlined passages. He goes on to explain that the drawing Baphomet, Baphomet? Baphomet. 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 Yeah. Is a symbol in occultism. When asked about occultism fashion choices, as if this is a real thing for fuck's sake. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. I'd be really fucked. Griffith says people wear, who wear all black t-shirts wear their fingernails black and quote unquote paint their hair black. <laughs> paint 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 mm-hmm. paint their hair black the prosecution okay. quickly points out to the jury that the defendants wore black t-shirts and liked heavy metal and were not occult i'm oh, sorry occult when it comes time for the defense to cross-examine our little occult doctor they rip him to shreds they ask griffiths how many trials has he testified in as an expert on the occult and he says one <laughs> so now paul ford and scott davison go in for the kill no pun intended Ford, <laughs> how were you accepted in enrollment at Columbia Pacific University? Griffiths, I had to fill out a series of papers. Ford, hold up a flyer. Did you ever fill out a flyer like this that says, call toll free for information on how to become a doctor? <laughs> says this is a mail order college, isn't it? What classes did you take between 1980 and 1982 to obtain your master's degree? Griffiths, classes? I, te- I testified. I answered that before. Ford, what classes did you take? Griffiths, none. (laughs) Sorry, I had to do it like that. (laughs) He's never attended any classes to obtain his master's or his PhD, which was awarded through a mail-ordered college that has no national certification and was shut down in 2000 by a California court order. He then claims that his course did not require him to take a single class and says, the street was my classroom. Now I, did- I can't hang on. I can't because who says that? The street was my classroom. Uh, I did look into this guy and his background funny. with Columbia. I got all the background info. I mean, <laughs> the street is my classroom. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the stupidest fucking thing anybody could say on a stand. Yeah. 
definitely not smart. When I wrote that, it wasn't as funny. <laughs> but now I'm thinking of it. It's just like, the street is my classroom. The street is my classroom. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Anyways, Ford then asks if it's his opinion that these crimes were motivated by the occult. And Griffith says yes. He then says he was consulted a year ago by Jerry Driver about some drawings Damien had done and was asked if West Memphis had a satanic or occult problem. Dale Griffiths admitted that he never met or spoke with either Damien or Jason, nor could he even pick Jason out in the courtroom. Val Price objects that Griffiths cannot be classified as an expert if he received, if he received education from an unaccredited mail-order school. Judge Burnett disagrees, says you don't have to have a degree to be an expert. Um, yes, you do. I actually, on that one, I can understand on some cases where you do not need a degree to be an expert. Like a mechanic does not need a degree to be an expert in why the brakes. But they're or not how the brakes testifying in a courtroom. Well, if mech, if if a mechanic but that's was different, yes. In this case, for him, I agree. Like you can't require a degree to be had for an expert across the board for everything. But in this case with Griffiths, a degree definitely was needed. He needed to have a degree yes. in criminology or something. So this is the opposite of what he says about the defense experts. Quote, Burnett seems to be making inconsistent distinctions between the qualifications of defense experts like Dr. Offshe in the Miss Kelly trial and prosecution witness, witnesses like Griffiths, who qualified based, in quotation marks, upon his knowledge, experience, and training in the area of occultism and Satanism. Quote, Unquote, John Douglas from the Law and Disorder book. Griffiths goes on to say that he's never seen victims of a sex crime that wasn't occult related. Really? I mean, is the only thing that Griffiths ever really would investigate was something that was alleged to be occult. He would never have looked at anything that wasn't alleged to be occult. Right. And he was going to see what he wanted to see. Yeah. And then he was also forced to admit that he's only investigated two sex crimes where the victims were tied. He also testified that he did not know if the accused knew. This is where things get hanky for me, guys. Um, he also testified that he did not know if the accused knew the victim's ages and that there's a belief in the occult that if you do not have sex with a boy before he turns nine, then the boy loses his magical powers. Now, I looked this up and I really, really, really hope my Google searches aren't being monitored. But nowhere does it say anything about having sex with a child for any reason, boy or girl, in the occult. How sick is Griffiths? Maybe he should be the one looked at. And the police, Griffiths, and the prosecution are the only ones here obsessed with the occult and Satanism. It's also evident that none of these people, Burnett included, are fit to be involved in the, any murder trial, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, Try I looking that up, though. Try to imagine what my Google search I did, looked like. I did, because you asked me to do it. You said you were having problems getting it, so you asked if I could look. And uh, and I am the Google queen. Um, <laughs> I found absolutely dick all yeah there was nothing about it and i tried multiple different forms all different areas could not find anything and let's just put this out there right now having sex with anybody who's a minor is disgusting oh god yeah for any reason and they should all be hanged and quartered uh that might have been an over no that was not an overstatement anyways okay so let's get off of griffiths because he, he just makes me laugh um the prosecution prays in two young girls who allegedly were witness co witnesses to conversations involving Damien. They both testified that they overheard Damien saying he killed three boys. One said she heard him say he was planning on killing two more. Neither one heard what was said before or after they overheard this. Neither could tell if he yelled it or screamed it. I'm sure you would remember that. Yeah. One said she wasn't that close to him. And the one girl placed Jason there too. So I think there is a lot of bullshit in this testimony. 
there's a lot of talk around town. There's yes. a lot of, oh, all this. Like, they're hearing it from their parents. They're hearing yeah. it on the news. They're hearing it from schoolmates. And it's, oh my gosh, I'm going to get to testify. Isn't this cool? Yeah, Look at makes, me. I'm so Here's cool. your 15 minutes of fame. Exactly. So Val Price puts Damien on the stand, which to me was a dumb idea, mm-hmm. um, and begins by asking about his interest. By the way, never never put your, your client on the stand if he's the one who's being prosecuted. <laughs> it opens him up. Really bad for bad cross Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Anyways, and Damien didn't do himself any favors. Anyway, so Val Price asks him about his interests, and Damien says skateboarding, talking on the phone, reading, and learning about different religions. Now, aside from learning about different religions, there's nothing odd about any of that. Um, Damien explains that he bought a book, Never on a Broomstick, for a dime at a library book sale. He says the passages that were underlined were in the book when he bought it, and he states that the book must have been used for a book report because there were notes written in it. When he asked if he knew... Each of the victims, vic- um, victims, Damien replies no for each one of them. Prosecutor asks Damien if he was familiar with Aleister Crowley, and Damien says he knows who he is, but has never read or seen any of his books. The defense has Damien explain Wicca and his interest in it. Damien also testified that he was arrested. When he was arrested, he asked for a lawyer three times, but Detective Ridge said he didn't need one because a lawyer was going to cost a lot of money and would quit in the end. <sighs> Val Price asked if Damien was different and why he was standoffish. Damien said that he didn't have the same interests as his peers and being standoffish is more of a defense mechanism. By letting people think he's weird, they keep them away. I get that. I do that. I be, I present myself as standoffish all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when you feel pure persecuted, you're going to be standoffish. Yeah, absolutely. Protect yourself. Yeah. So then John Mark Byers testifies for the defense about the knife that he gifted to the film crew. Mark says that to his knowledge, Chris never touched the knife and he never used the knife when hunting. When Price asked if the knife had ever been used, Byers responds with, used for what? (laughs) Once clarified, Byers said he trimmed his toenails and once tried to trim some venison. Thank you for this present that had touched your grimy toenails. (laughs) If I was the film crew, I would have probably barfed right there. Yeah, yeah. Don't give me anything that's touched your toenails, okay? (laughs) That's disgusting. Um, he said he wasn't sure if anyone in his family had ever been injured by the knife. So then the Bojangles restaurant manager, Marty King, was called up and he went over what happened on the night of May 5th. I didn't put it all in here because we already discussed that. When asked about May 6th, King testified that two detectives showed up after he called the police again after, about the incident. Says that they took a report, description, and scrapings of the blood on the wall. So he verifies that that was done. Yeah. But obviously those were lost. Yeah. So... Then the defense brings in former police officer Robert Hicks, who had an expertise in satanic crimes and refutes, refutes everything Dale Griffiths said. Hicks said that he knew of no connection to the occult or sexual or genital mutilation and that there was no empirical evidence connecting heavy metal music to, or people wearing black to people committing various crimes, satanic or otherwise. Mm-hmm. During the closing arguments, which began with Prosecutor Fogelman saying that the motive in this crime was satanic sacrifice, he said that Damien has no soul. Fogelman used a melon to demonstrate what the knife marks would look like and how similar they would be to the wounds on the boys. But he's standing there and he's whacking at the melon. When you whack at a melon, that is not how you stab or mutilate somebody. No. It's not the same motion. It's not the same anything. You're just trying to make the serrated mark show up. That's all. Plus, I believe that the defense called an audible on this one and didn't they call objection? Yeah. It, the melon was not the, entered in as evidence and it should have been. And it even been, this. I mean, I guess the other thing for me on that is that. I wasn't that too sure about this one myself. A melon does not 
in any way represent what human skin would look like no. or what human flesh would no. look like. If they had used like a pig carcass, that's a bit different. Or yeah. let's say ballistic gel or something. Yeah. But using a melon, like, yeah. I don't I think, think they had ballistic gel back in the in 93. Yeah, they might not have. Good yeah. point. Yeah. But it's, pig carcass. It's, you know, using a melon to demonstrate that, that's just... I'm sorry, that's yeah, stupid. It's not the same. Yeah. So he also goes on to disregard Dr. Frank Peretti's testimony about the time of death, saying the boys were killed between 9.30 and 10 o'clock at night on May 5th, right where they had been found. God. So, of course, the defense gets to um, defense for Eccles. Val Price reminds the jury that Frank Peretti said the knife belonging to John Mark Byers was consistent with some of the injuries found on Christopher Byers, and that Inspector Gitchell said that whatever, whenever they read a suspect their rights, even back in January... That person is still a suspect. So Mark Byers was still technically a suspect. Price pointed out that there was no direct evidence linking Damien or Jason to the murders and that they brought the existence of other suspects to the jury, which creates reasonable doubt. He brings up the Negroid hair and the man at Bojangles and how close the bodies were to the truck wash. How the police fumbled the investigation, neglecting to collect evidence at the scene and losing potential exculpatory evidence. And they had Damien Eccles tunnel vision, which they definitely proved. Oh, hell yeah. Um, Jason Baldwin's attorney, Paul Ford, says the only evidence the state has against his client is a hearsay conversation with a criminal who claims took place. There was nothing else. No eyewitnesses placing Jason near the scene. Ford reminds the jury that Dr. Peretti said that performing the castration in those conditions would be difficult to do even for an experienced doctor. But the prosecution wants the jury to believe that a small, skinny 16-year-old boy could do it. Quote, satanic panic. Yeah, that's a scary thing. But it's a scarier thing to convict someone with no evidence, unquote, Paul Ford. Prosecution's Brent Davis finishes up by admitting that finding Jason Baldwin guilty would be very hard with just fiber evidence and a jailhouse snitch. Well, then right there, the freaking jury should have let him off. On March 18th, 1994, the jury found Damien Eccles guilty on three counts of capital first degree murder. They found Jason Baldwin guilty on three counts of capital first degree murder, too. The following day, it took the jurors just two hours to decide on sentencing. Jason's was, Jason was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole, and Damien was sentenced to death by lethal injection. And I'm sorry, they didn't have enough. How are they being charged with things with no evidence against them? Exactly. Yeah. That That's makes, our question. That makes or, no sense. Like, or is your script written a little bit biased no. to lean into it? There's, there's literally no because nothing. I tell you right now, if I was being biased, Colleen would call me out on yeah. it. Yeah, because she watched the documentaries, she's seen this stuff, everything that was presented in the documentaries I presented in briefing here. There's, there's even more stuff which is you're going on stuff I'm remembering. I left it, a which, lot which out. You did not mention which shows even greater problems. Um, and and the like for the uh, the juvenile delinquent who testified. Uh, Michael uh, Michael Carson. Michael Carson. Um, the day after he testified, one of the heads of his, of the facility that he was at called the prosecution and said, "Listen, no, call the defense. Call, call the Paul defense. Ford. Paul, yep. Call the defense and said, listen, he lied. That never happened. All of the kids here are saying that never happened. Mm-hmm. He lies all the time. This was not true. You can use me." But he wasn't yeah, allowed to bring him in. No, David Burnett, Judge Burnett denied, denied. him yep. because it was hearsay. Hearsay. Well, so was this. This is the guy who's, who's he's, he's running the facility and he's saying, yeah. no, this kid is lying. Yeah. Like there was so much other stuff going on. Like, I mean, it sounds bad from what Sarah's saying. It's worse. 
yeah, than what it sounds way like. Way worse. Way worse. It's like, how could they ever go to convict these guys? I, I do not know. Well, the jury is just as um, responsible for this because if I'm sitting on that jury and this is what's presented to me as a case, I'm going to be like, what? There's nothing here. Yep. You guys are presenting a bunch of hearsay evidence, expertise that are basically a joke. Mm-hmm. And the ones that I want to hear from, you're not letting me. Yeah. Because so much was done by I should be hearing doors. from expertise from both sides. Yeah. Full. Yeah. Not hidden. Yeah. I could not figure out as, I, as I'm listening to it and I'm seeing the jury on this, I'm thinking, wait a minute, isn't a jury only supposed to convict if there is no reasonable doubt? Any, any iota of I doubt. I have so much doubt. And you go, <laughs> no, we can't convict. You can only convict if you are 100% certain. There was so much presented that would cast a reasonable doubt. Even, they should have said no. Even if these boys were guilty of this murder, there's nothing here. No, no. The prosecution did not prove the state's case. Absolutely not. The pro- it's it's even if they exactly, even if they were guilty, there is no proof. There is nothing there except for this is what we believe. Yeah. Well, that's nice. That's your belief. That's not fact. And being in a if you were in a satanic cult or not, is that really motive? Yeah. That's just your religious belief. Exactly. It doesn't necessarily it, necessitate motive. Yeah. And it's like there really is no record of satanic killings anywhere. No, I know. Now, I sent you on that witch hunt. I, I, uh, no pun intended. I did actually find one site which ta- which is um, survivors of cults. And it's it's about all different types. And the majority of them are like they're not talking about killings. They're talking about the ritualistic abuse they suffered. Yeah. And and many of these are actually in different religious ones. There's also a difference between ritualistic ritualistic abuse and ritualistic exactly. Murder, sacrificing. Exactly. So, so yeah. Yeah. Fuck off, Lucy. These are my pants. Stop putting <laughs> holes in my pants. I'll put holes in your pants. She doesn't wear any she the cat. <laughs> um, okay, so let's dive in. We're almost done. We have like ten pages left. So the documentary, this is the aftermath with appeals and stuff. Um, so the documentary that was being filmed during the trial was Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills, which was part one. And it was released and it caused a stir. The public outside of Arkansas, that is, who saw the documentary could not believe the injustice in this case and began to speak out. Chris Worthington, Kathy Backen, and Burke Souls created the Free the West Memphis Three website and movement. They took part in many public events and second and the second Paradise Lost film, which was basically around them and John Mark Byers. Um, and they continually spoke out against the injustice and to draw and as well as to draw more attention to the case. But they were not alone. Celebrities took notice too. Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder, Johnny Depp, and Natalie Maines, who was of the Dixie Chicks. I think they call them the Chicks now, but we'll just yeah. keep calling them Dixie Chicks. Just to name a few became very outspoken, especially Natalie Maines and Oh, yeah. Any better. So, as the public and celebrities fought on the outside, the fight was far from over on the inside. Dan Stidham was the only original trial lawyer who stayed on. But he didn't just stay on for Jesse. He stepped in for Jason. Because in the nick of time, as his appeal deadline was vastly approaching, he didn't have a lawyer. So, Dan stayed on until they helped and did his appeal until they could find an Appellate attorney, Jason. Um, anybody, like, seriously, the... Book Devil's Not, by the way, by Mara Leverett is a great read. Um, it gives you a lot more on the trial, everything on the background, including some of this stuff. Um, not all of it because the book was published before this whole thing kind of wrapped up. Um, but it's an excellent read and I highly recommend it if you want to get really deep dive into this case. Um, anyway, th- this came out, I think, in Dark Spell, which was Jason Baldwin's book about 
um, Dan Stidham staying on as Jason's attorney for a while. So then Stidham brought in forensic expert and self-proclaimed profiler, who John Douglas doesn't think very highly of, by the way, Brent Turvey, who offered some insight into the case. And I basically only pointed out the things that Turvey got right. Yeah, because uh, some of it was odd. Yeah. So Turvey points out that the crime was not cult-related, as serial killers and cult members would never choose these types of victims because they would be missed. He also brings up that the knife wounds were actually bite marks. Meanwhile, on death row, Damien was being beaten up, mostly by the guards. He says he was in fear for his life, and it wasn't because of the other inmates. He also says he had been raped repeatedly and files a lawsuit against the prison authorities for failing to stop the attacks. Unfortunately, Judge David Burnett was still the judge overseeing this case and constantly denies all of the appeals being filed. The Arkansas Supreme Court upholds all of Burnett's rulings, making the appeal process near impossible. So, to me, at least, it became a major surprise when Burnett actually allowed to have the bite marks analyzed and granted permission to obtain dental impressions from Damien, Jason, and Jesse. During the analyzing of the bite impressions, it was discovered that none of the three defendants' teeth were a match to these bite marks. Mm -hmm. Damien would find some semblance of peace behind bars in the name of love. After seeing the first Paradise Lost, New York City landscape architect Lori Davis reached out to Damien. The two kept up communication, and as time went on, their feelings for each other evolved. Lori eventually packed up her life and moved to Arkansas to keep fighting for Damien and the other two. They were married in December of 1999. Through Lori, Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson and his wife, who's the producer, Fran Walsh, got involved and corresponded with Lori frequently and became her support system. They helped pay for the best defense team and experts. In 2004, Michael Carson recanted his testimony against Jason Baldwin, and Vicky and Aaron Hutchinson admitted to lying about everything. Vicky said the police threatened to take her children away from her. A neighbor of the Hobbs's also came forward. Jamie Clark Ballard claimed that on May 5th at around 6.30, as they were leaving for church as they always did on Wednesdays, the three boys zoomed by her. She told Chris to go home, but he said no. Then she noticed Terry Hobbs walking down the sidewalk calling after Stevie, but the boys ignored him and laughed. Police never talked to her, and she didn't know anything about this until 2010 that Terry Hobbs said he never saw the boys at all that day, but she knew he was lying. Damien Eccles' new attorney, Dennis Reardon, who's a hero in this story, uh, calls in some pretty well-respected experts to look at the case, and in 2007, Reardon and his super team held a press conference. So DNA evidence selected by the prosecution was sent to a lab in Virginia for testing, and the results showed that none of the tested DNA matched any of the three defendants. Serologist Thomas Fetter of the super team was given different samples of hair, cigarette butts, and buccal swabs taken from people involved in the case, and concluded that a hair found in the knot in one of the shoelaces used to tie up Michael Moore was consistent with Terry Hobbs. He also found that none of the DNA evidence matched Damien, Jason, or Jesse, and that roughly 1.5% of the population could be the source of that hair, and that excludes the West Memphis Three, but not Terry Hobbs. So, to give context here, when you're tying the lace, it wasn't just, like, in the lace. It was actually in the knot. Yeah. It had to be as it the had knot's to tied. It got, yeah, it got stuck in the knot as it was being tied. So, it's not like it just fell on later. It was yeah. right there, which places whoever it dropped from right it, at, right it, in the middle of this. But it could have been secondary transfer. It could have been it secondary. It still could have been secondary yeah, transfer. Yeah. Dr. This guy like Dr. Warner Spitz, a world-renowned forensic pathologist whose resume included investigations on the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King, and forensic odontologist. I know I said that wrong. Odontologist. Thank you, Dr. Richard Sov- Suvron, 
whose work on bite marks was pivotal in the conviction of infamous serial killer Ted Bundy, looked at the bite marks in this case and concluded they were not human bite marks. Dr. Spitz concluded that the bite marks were done postmortem from animal predation, likely by an alligator snapping turtle, which also examined or also explained the locations of the scrapes and abrasions, which was done by turtle claws as they fed on the soft tissue. Now, these snapping turtles were found in the bayou. Well, in fact, right next to the creek was an area they called Turtle Hill. Yes, and that's yeah. where they were. And turtles are going to go for the fleshy parts that the hang down tissue. first, the soft tissue. A.K.A. Michael ba- or Christopher Byers. Pee-pee. Penis. Yeah. The, the penis, the scrotum, the earlobes, the nose, the lips. the lips. Inside the mouth, even. Yep. It very... Eyelids. And, yeah, and the one documentary showed an example of what a turtle bite looked like, and it was identical to so what was on... I did... This was bad. I looked up the bite marks on their bodies yeah. on Google of the boys. Yeah. I enlarged it. And then I went and got a bite mark comparison of the alligator snapping turtle. And I put them side by side. Dead on. I, dead on. I know. I saw it. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, yeah. It was just like, what the F? Yeah. And then the scrapes, which are like, it's not a knife. They're. The, no, yeah, they were claws. They look like claws. So, and animals will move the body as needed. Yeah. Because they'll have, they'll have to hold on to it. Yeah. So John Douglas, infamous FBI profiler, my hero, who began the behavioral science unit at the FBI in Quantico, talked about the crime and the type of defender who was responsible. His analysis concluded that this is not a ritualistic or sexually motivated murder, that it is a personal cause homicide, meaning there was interpersonal aggression resulting in death. There was no motive of greed or sexual gratification and not sanctioned by a group. There was an underlying emotional conflict resulting in the murders of Michael, Stevie, and Christopher. The offender was very methodical. The removing of the clothes was likely to inflict embarrassment, instill fear, and a way to control them and prevent them from running. How they were tied using various knots reflects his personality and behavior. They were murdered there where they were found, as it would be too risky to carry three bodies and two bicycles into the woods. His post-offense behavior speaks to his frame of mind. He was aware of what he had done and had the foresight to hide the bodies, bikes, and clothing. The offender likely has a violent past, and even if this started as an act of discipline that got out of hand, he will never take accountability for it. What might be even a bigger deal is the accusation of possible jury misconduct in the Eccles and Baldwin trial. They were not allowed to use or even discuss or mention Jesse's confession or trial. Allegedly, the jury foreman told a lawyer before the trial that he believed Eccles and Baldwin were guilty and said he planned on to in- planned to introduce the confession to the jury and that those boys will be found guilty and it'll be because of him. So that's a serious accusation. Well, there was like a signed uh, deposition from a lawyer who talked to the foreman yeah. and the foreman had always expressed extreme hatred towards these boys. Oh, they absolutely did it. And was dead on that these guys did it. I'm going to make sure they they do it. I even wanted to know from the lawyer, how best do I act in order to get on the jury? Like, what the hell? Yeah, that that is um, a serious allegation that should have thrown the whole thing out. Oh, yeah. Right away. And it should have been retried like that. Oh, God, yeah. But, of course, it hasn't. Of course. So, that's a huge deal. That's a huge fucking deal. So in April 2008, and this is where my dates get a little hinky, so I might be right, I might be wrong, just bear with me. Um, Reardon files for a motion for a new trial based on the new DNA evidence and findings from his experts. The states say the new DNA evidence was not strong enough and the new evidence could not be considered motion, or could not be considered motion was denied. 
On September 10th, her friendly neighborhood asshole judge, Burnett, <laughs> refuses to hear any new evidence and denies Eccles' request for a new trial. 20 days later, Dennis Reardon goes to the Arkansas Supreme Court in regards to the new DNA statute, which reads, If DNA evidence can exclude a convicted defendant, then all evidence must be looked at, even if discovered after the original trial. All evidence of inculpatory and exculpatory should be considered. Well, Reardon's efforts actually paid off this time, and the ACS grants the defense an, edu edu uh, the, an evidentiary hearing set for December 2011. There's a problem. Damien's health was basically declining at this point, and it wasn't just necessarily because of his him being on death row. Um, his He was vitamin D deficient from not being able to go outside for at least seven years. His eyesight was failing because of the lighting in the prison, and he was developing heart issues. So the defense had to do something. So they brought forth the motion to skip the evidentiary hearing and go straight to trial. But the new district attorney, Scott Ellington, was not looking forward to a new trial based on the, dis the, the deterioration of evidence, memories lost, and the witnesses recanted testimonies. It's a coin toss as to which side was more desperate. The good news was Judge Bur David Burnett was out. Yeah, and Judge God. David Lacer was in. So Lori Davis and Damien's defense team made a very tough decision in order to free the West Memphis Three, mostly because of Damien's health concerns. They asked for an Alford plea. An Alford plea basic is not usually accepted by the prosecution or the judge. They usually refuse it. What an Alford plea is, it's a plea of guilty where you still maintain your innocence but admitting the prosecution has evidence which would likely result in a guilty verdict if brought to trial. Scott Ellington had one condition. All three had to agree to the Alford plea in order for him to accept it. You would think that they would jump on this. I don't know. It's it's honestly, it, it is, it's like, because you're saying I'm guilty, but no, I'm innocent, but I will say I'm guilty. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Damien and Jesse do actually agree to it right away. But Jason stood his ground. And said he would stay in jail and fight for his innocence until his last breath. And then Jason's friend Holly and Eddie Vedder convinced him to take the plea because Damien wasn't going to make it. And Jason was not going to let his best friend die. And he agreed to it. And that actually speaks to Jason Baldwin's character. Oh. And even Damien Eccles said this. He's like, Jason's a great guy because he was willing to fight. But the moment that he heard that I was sick and not doing well, he he put his morals aside or put his beliefs aside and came to my rescue. Well, I think one of the most touching moments was the press conference after. Yeah. And, and where he said, I have to thank Jason for what he did. Yeah. That he, he did this for me. He didn't want to, but he did it for me. That was the most touching thing. And, yeah. But Jason, that squish, squish moment. I know, but yeah. Jason Baldwin, very, he really impressed me so he's much. He's a sweetheart. He's, he's a, sweetheart. a sweetheart. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to him on Twitter. Oh, nice. Yes, he's a, he's a really good guy. And um, anyway, so we'll get back to that. So Jason just couldn't let his best friend die in there. I don't think he could live with that. No. So on August 19th, 2011, Damien, Jason, and Jesse stood before Judge Lacer and entered their Alford pleas. They were free to go after 18 years and 78 days in prison. But before he let everyone go, Judge Lacer had this to say. Quote, and this this means this is oh, huge. Oh, yeah. So, quote, I believe this ruling will give rise to discussions for a long time to come. I don't think it will make the pain go away for the families of the victims. I don't think it will make the pain go away for the families of the defendants. It won't take away a minute of time these men have served in prison. 
This is a tragedy on all sides, unquote. Mark Byers and Pam Hicks, Hicks, formerly Hobbs, felt that the West Memphis Three should have been exonerated. The Moores and Terry Hobbs felt like this was unfair and deeming Jason and Jesse should be rotting in prison. So they're out. They're out now, which is great. But they're still listed as convicted murderers. Yes. So their futures are kind of in limbo at this moment. But we're going to get to that. Yeah. So let's we, we talk about other suspects. Well, okay. I, I mean, the on that one, I always, when I'm watching that with what the prosecute, what the state was doing on that one, if they went through with the trial and if the three of them were exonerated. They would have had a huge acquitted, fucking lawsuit. They would have had, they would have had to pay a fortune and they knew it. And, you know, I, when I watched the Supreme Court hearing, what got me on that was you could see how angry those Supreme Court judges were at what they were being told because the defense was saying, no, this is the statute. We have new evidence. It should be allowed in. Isn't that the point to provide truth? And the prosecution was saying, basically, it's like, well, no, we can never be wrong. So Mm -hmm. it can't go in. If we let this in once, then we'll have to do it for everybody else. We can't ever be wrong. But what's the point of having the statute? Exactly. And you could see, so that they immediately let it through. And it was like, uh, but yet I could have seen that the prosecution, the state would have. Oh, I think they would have lost that case. I think they would have lost it, but they would have dragged it for a long time. Uh, That's the biggie. It, It, you know, there was so much on this one. Like, holy cow. So are the three of us in agreement that these boys are innocent? Matt says yes. I hey, I consider that there were six victims. Yes, so do I. There there weren't just the three murdered boys. It was um, the three teenage there boys who lost their lives. Three teenage boys who lost their lives. There were six victims there were in six this. Six victims. I agree yeah. fully. So okay, so we're all in agreement that these that Jason, Damien, and Jesse are innocent. Um. So who else could have done it? So let's take a quick look. Well, not so quick. So John Mark Byers. I think we have to look at him. Um. I personally don't think he did it. Um. But he showed some extreme aggression towards the West Memphis Three in parts one and two of the Paradise Lost documentaries and was portrayed as a crazy religious nutbar. <laughs> but he wasn't as dumb as he was made to seem. So, but he disciplined his children, much like many children of our generation had done. Um, but that that has never been any outright, but there has never been any outright accusations of abuse against his wife or ch- children. The West Memphis police did interview him more than a few times and his only criminal history was nonviolent. Just drug trafficking and fraud at that time. Byers was open about strapping Chris on May 5th. He wasn't hiding anything. But what has he done since? The trial concluded. Well, Mark and Melissa Byers left West Memphis and moved to Hardy, Arkansas. And in July of 1994, Mark was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor when he and a teen boy, who I have no idea where this teen boy came from. I had no but idea. Apparently they were driving in a car together. Yeah. Um, came upon another teen boy and he made them fight as he stood by holding a shotgun as he encouraged them the boy he was with had a closed fist knife i have no idea what a closed fist knife is that doesn't either so i thought it was just that he had a pocket knife that was closed that's Maybe. what i thought it's a closed fist okay knife in all right dog. but yeah so anyways he just stood by there with a shotgun keeping people from stopping this fight going on which so yeah a little interesting. But I still don't know where this boy came from. Yeah, I don't know. It might have been a, a friend of his Maybe. of his son, because I know there was an older son, yeah, there was but an older I don't son. know. It would make more sense if it was the older son. Anyways, 
Oh, John Merck. Anyways, <laughs> the West oh, he Memphis. Was, yeah. He was funny. The West Memphis Police Department also had 13 warrants out on the buyers as for allegedly writing $700 worth of bad checks. They were also accused in 1996, I think it was 1996, of stealing $20,000 worth of property from a neighbor. Yes, it was 96. Was it 96? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was like February or something. Yeah, January, yeah it, was only, it was only about like three or four years later, and she was still alive. So. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know. So on March 29th, 1996, Melissa Byers was found dead naked in her bed. The cause of death was listed as an overdose, but the manner is listed as unknown. Mark and Melissa were having trouble in their marriage, and he already was seeing someone else. And Melissa had a long history of substance abuse, including heroin, prior to Chris's death, or prior even, I think, to when she met Mark Byers. Yeah. Um, some even surmised that she was taking Chris's Ritalin, which, because his doctors couldn't figure out why it wasn't working for him. <laughs> Probably because his mother was popping them. Oh. In 1999. <laughs> this is hilarious. In 1999. In 1999, Mark was arrested for selling prescription drugs like Xanax <laughs> to an undercover cop. So what he did, not you're going to laugh. So he picks up the phone, right? He calls this number. He says, hey, I've got some drugs you might be interested in. And the guy on the other end is a cop. And he doesn't know this. He doesn't know. And he's like, yeah? I'm like, yeah. How about you come by? He's like, okay, but I can't come right now. I'm at work. He's like, okay, send Jeff. Send Steve or whatever his name is, right? <laughs> so he's like, okay. So the guy calls another cop to go pick up this drugs. So he goes to buy the drugs off of John Mark Byers, and he's an undercover cop. Oh my! Who he God. called himself. <laughs> oh my lord! Well, Byers. Okay, Byers was a character. I would not ever put him as super intelligent. Oh no, no. He no. okay. He, Anybody from Arkansas if, is not intelligent. If you sorry, Bill Clinton. If if you only watch. Uh, the first two of Paradise Lost. You will be con- convinced that Byers is off the rails and he's done it and everything. But when you go past, it's sorry. The guy loves the camera. Okay, he loves the camera and he's outspoken. And but I will say this: he does have a very nice singing voice. Okay, sure. Okay, I will say that you get to hear him sing. His voice is not bad. Like it's not horrible. I, I guess love so, it, but, but it's not my style. But he, I, I. I do give the guy a lot of But it's funny. He basically got himself arrested. Like, I that's know. Hilarious. Like, insane. And so he was supposed to be sentenced for four, for eight years, but he only did a few months. I'm actually surprised he did that, considering everything else he's gotten off with. So. Yeah, exactly. But anyways, his time was accounted for on May 5th. Like, he was in Memphis at doctor's appointments all day. Then he was taking Ryan to court, picking up Melissa, picking up Ryan. Like, he was... And then he was searching the entire time. He was so. the only parent who was out there... Actively searching actively from the moment they realized he was exactly. gone. Exactly. Boom. He he loved... He loved he, he Christopher. Loved, he loved Christopher. He did. He did. Yeah. So, yes, his time is accounted for. And all Mark Byers really wanted was just the answers to whom killed his son. And he was big enough to admit when he was wrong. And he even apologized to Damien in a letter. Yeah. Um. Sadly... Mark Byers would not get that truth. He he died in June of eight of twenty twenty in a oh. car accident. Oh, I'm sorry to hear. I I Rest had in peace, to, John Mark Byers. I had to give him so much credit because in in the third part of Paradise Lost, um, he was talking with the reporters about. Yeah, we were all convinced they did. It was a witch hunt for these T three. It did it, and he's going on, and and the reporter goes, "Well, weren't you in the witch hunt?" He goes, "I led the witch hunt," and it's. He was willing to say he was wrong. And he said the police and the prosecutors told us and we believed them. Yes. he. I, I love the fact that he was willing to say that he had been wrong and he wanted to right that wrong. He wanted to know who killed his son. Yes, yeah. I agree. 
So I don't think Todd Moore, Dana Moore, Pam Hobbs, or Melissa Byers were ever really suspects, but they also had alibis. Well, Todd and Pam, Todd Moore and Pam Hobbs were at work. They had alibis. Um, Melissa Byers and Dana Moore were basically all out searching. So yeah. they also had relatively alibis because they were seen by many people. Yeah. But they were never interviewed. They The police didn't do a lot of it. Like, they didn't interview... Uh, they didn't canvas the areas where the boys lived. Like the neighbor, who, neighbor who saw the boys talking. Yeah, to she Terry, said they never even talked to her. No one ever talked to her. No one came to her. She was waiting for them to come. No. And one how came. many times have we done these true crime things where I said you start with the inner circle, you start uh-huh. with the families, you work your way out. Yep. Yeah, they didn't do that. So that brings us to Terry Hobbs. Uh huh. Oh yeah, this is Matt. A you better hold on to your britches. Oh, this this is a biggie. So Terry Hobbs was never interviewed by police. And his time was not exactly accounted for. Hobbs told everyone that he was with his friend David Jacoby. And Jacoby remembers things differently. Jacoby said that Terry and his daughter Amanda showed up just after 5 p.m. And he even recalls seeing three boys, two on a bike and one on a skateboard in the street behind him when he answered the door. At around 6.30, Hobbs left to go back, go back out looking for Stevie, if he was ever looking for him to begin with. Possibly leaving Amanda with him and his wife, Bobby. An hour later, Hobbs is returned, and both he and Jacoby went out to look for Stevie. Jacoby said when they were in Robin Hood Hills, they were near the pipe bridge, and he saw that what looked like bike tracks and small bloody footprints. But as they got closer to the area, which would later be discovered where the boys were found, Terry said he had a bad feeling, and they left. Hmm. Um, what? Like, you, uh, what? If I have a bad feeling and my kid's missing, I'm oh, going towards it. Well, exactly. And while the guy was supposed to be out looking in the beginning, he was playing guitar with Jacoby. With Jacoby, yeah. So Terry Hobbs also comes from a background of, a ho- like he came from a home of child abuse, and his father was a fundamentalist minister. Oh boy. Um, Hobbs was also a trained butcher who once worked in a slaughterhouse. Mm. In 1982, a neighbor who had overheard him beating on his first wife told him to stop, and Hobbs threatened her. Then one day as she was getting out of the shower, Terry Hobbs was standing there. She screamed and he took off. Well, he grabbed her breasts first. Oh, right. Yeah, I forgot He grabbed about that her part. breasts and then... See, yep. you, you come in handy. Yeah, I, I, well, I got some good recall on things. Yeah. There had been some issues in the marriage before Stevie was killed. Stevie had even asked his mother to divorce Terry. And right after his murder, Terry left Pam and, Aunt, and Amanda for two weeks. And when he came back, he kept telling Pam to get over it. Oh, yeah. He was bad. He's an asshole. He was like, get over it. Why do you need to worry about it? Your, yeah. your son is killed. Like, your your wife's son is killed and you're telling her to get over it? Yeah. That's disgusting. But there were a lot of issues with him There's and his stepson. There's a lot step of issues. Son. Yes. Well, I get to that. Good. <laughs> um, in November of 1994, Hobbs shot Pam's brother in the stomach after he hit Pam and she called her brother. Jackie Hicks Jr. would survive, but he died 10 years later after a, a, sur- a follow-up surgery from a blood clot. In 2003, Terry was arrested for drug possession Pam divorced him, and his daughter Amanda accused him of sexual abuse twice. Mm-hmm. In 2004, Pam and her sister found Stevie's pocket knife in a bunch of Terry's belongings. And she found that very strange because Stevie always carried it and would have had it on him the night he died. Yeah, he was never without it. Never without it. Stevie's aunt claimed that Stevie once told her that Terry would lock him in the closet and beat him. And that Terry forced him and Amanda to watch pornography and make Stevie do things to his little sister while Terry watched and masturbated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's actually worse than that. I kind of just condensed yeah. it. 
Um, in 2007, as I mentioned, there was a hair found in the knot of the bindings used on Michael Moore, which matched Hobbs, and the police, that's when the police finally interviewed him. In 2009, Dixie Chicks lead singer Natalie Maine said in a press conference about the DNA evidence, and although Natalie didn't mention any names, Terry Hobbs sued her for defamation. She countersues Hobbs back, and he's forced to defend his past behaviors, criminal background, and actions on May 5th. Um, to watch this interview oh, of the deposition was... Holy. It gave me chills, I think, in a weird way, because yeah. he his mannerisms and his behavior during the deposition were not wrong normal it was wrong like he would laugh at smile smile at at things like he was remembering yeah and he would absolutely dismiss important things like Like when when they mentioned the woman in the shower yeah he went (laughs) (laughs) he was laughing yeah and when and when they're talking about well when your son was when your stepson was found murdered in this and he just gets this little smirk on his face like it, it listening to him in that deposition was one eerie. of the weirdest. Yes. Eerie. Eerie's so good. If I can find it on YouTube, I will post it in that WordPress. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he was totally chuckling and shit. It was just strange. Very strange. So in West, in the West of Memphis documentary, which was done by Peter Jackson, Jacoby was talking to John Douglas and John Douglas was kind of giving him what the profile was. And that's when Jacoby kind of went, that sounds like Terry Hobbs. Mm-hmm. And then, Terry Hobbs records a phone conversation on camera with Terry who says that there's an FBI guy poking around and that he's scared. Yeah, Jacoby calls right? Terry yeah. and it's all recorded. And Jacoby records it. And then Terry tells him, um, like, just keep telling them that we were together. And after he hangs up, Jacoby's actually very upset by this. He's like, what have I done? Like, what is he hiding? Why is my friend using me? Like he looked so confused and torn. It was like, like all of a sudden the blinders came off and he realized what his friend had been doing, like by gaslighting him by saying, well, you just don't remember that we were together or by, yeah, tell, tell them this and tell them that. And all of a sudden it was like, it almost finally dawned on him that, Oh, his friend was using him. His friend was using him and his friend might have done this and he could have been covered. Might have. Yeah. So, and then I just, I'm going to gloss over this one really quickly because we're running out of time, I think. Friends of Hobbs' nephew have also come forward saying that they had overheard conversations between um, their friend's dad, which is uh, Terry Hobbs' brother, I think Michael Hobbs, and Terry talk about um, killing three kids, killing the kids. Um, Also, there's been references to it being called the Hobbs family secret. The nephew was pretty shook up about it, but of course it was these boys were talking about yeah. what the nephew had told them about what his dad had told him about it's, what it's his uncle had told him. It's all hearsay. It's hearsay, but, but it it's kind of you add it, it all up. It fits. You so I mean, all not all of this makes Terry guilty. No, no. But when you look at the totality of everything, and you you see the behaviors of him, the profile. The pro- profile fits him to a T. profile fits him to a T. Yeah. And Terry Hobbs is never going to admit. No, never. Oh, he never would. He no. wouldn't and couldn't no. if he wanted to. So. And and I guess where I thought, like, I mean, I looked at it and I'm like, I really think he did it. But <laughs> then I do have to stop myself and be like, wait a minute. They took these three teenage boys and convicted them based on their behaviors, what they felt, but no evidence. So I I have to stop myself and be like. The, we can't do the same. We can't do the same. So 
what we're seeing, what we're being presented with does make it look like Terry did it. But what I think is more necessary is they need to do further investigation. It which, warrants it, definitely. Which is not going to happen because as far as the state is concerned, well, we have our people. They admitted they were guilty. The The prosecution could would not, ex- like, they just didn't even recognize the fact that, yes, they said they were guilty, but they did it with a addendum that we are innocent, but we're saying it because you guys want us to and it's easier. Yeah. But they took it as, nope, our guilty people are here. If they've said they're guilty, we're all good. Yeah. Yeah. So Christopher Morgan, who sort of confessed to the California authorities, then recanted. Uh, he was in the area and quickly left right after the murders. And a lot of the times, sometimes people who murder people will just all of a sudden move. Yeah. Get up, go. So I don't know whether we would consider him a viable suspect or it. But the fact of the matter is, is that he at one point did kind of say he might have done it. You can't discount that, even though he recants. It Once you say it, it's out there. And it does create reasonable doubt against it, the West Memphis absolutely. Three. Well, there's so much reasonable doubt. Oh, yeah, but this is... That I mean, one, granted, yeah. it was not allowed in court. Of course. But, yeah. For so, that. what about Mr. Bojangles? Oh. So, he, Mr. Bojangles, that's what everybody calls yeah. him. He was an African-American male who was covered in mud and blood when he locked himself in the washroom at the Bojangles restaurant. Don't forget, a hair belonging to an African-American was found on Chris Byers' body. That kind of is a link. Yeah. Definitely cast reasonable doubt. So how many more possible suspects are there? And did the West Memphis police actually thoroughly go through all of these people and rule them out? I doubt it. We we know, we they know for a fact they didn't rule out John Mark Byers. They didn't rule out Terry Hobbs. Yeah. Because they never investigated They never them. investigated. They, they really absolutely tunnel visioned on Damien. Yeah. And that was it. After that idea got in their head, they were done. Yeah. Absolutely done. So... Today, the West Memphis Three are free. They are still listed as convicted killers. So we we really want them to get their names cleared. They And the real person who was responsible to be convicted. Yes. But today, from what I can find, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. went back to his life in West Memphis working as a mechanic. Uh, he was arrested in 2017 for driving without a license, no proof of insurance, and driving with one or no headlight. Um, there are conditions on the Alfred plea, but yeah. I don't think this actually, cause they were like affects it. Cause it was basically, these were misdemeanors. Okay. Yeah. Cause the Alfred plea is like, if they have any, um, if they're arrested for anything within the next 10 years, their original sentence will apply. Yeah. So maybe it, maybe there is a condition I as think, to what type of thing. Yeah. These are pretty minuscule. Yeah. So, but anyways, he's, he stays away from the public view and he's very private. So there's not a lot of information about him out there. But, I mean, I don't know if he listens to podcasts or not, but if he does hear this, you know, Jesse, we're on your side, dude. Oh, hell yeah. You know? Do not blame. I have no blame or shade on him for the confession. He was hosed. He was absolutely hosed. You spend hours in that. They're feeding you information. You are so, you, you're a kid. You don't have any assistance or any help. Absolutely no, no blame put on him for that one. Yeah. So Jason Baldwin is currently dedicating his life to giving back to his community in Austin, Texas. Um, he was doing amazing work with helping the wrongfully convicted as co-founder of Proclaimed Justice, but he has recently st- stepped down this year. Um, it, it's not it's a non-for-profit, so he, he doesn't get paid for it. And I think with the cost of living being the way that it yeah. is, it was hard for him to continue working. Yeah. But he still gives back. And, <clears throat> excuse me, he still gives back to his community. He's also He's doing a lot of food drives every weekend. You know, he's donating everything, like, time and 
energy to helping his community. Um, and he's still very much a voice and very outspoken about the prison system. Um, he's a voice for the wrongfully convicted still and inmate rights. Yep. Even though I think certain inmates don't have a right to have rights, but I also think that they do have rights, certain rights. Yeah. You know? He really, <clears throat> his sense of justice and is is phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Um, his sense of justice and right and wrong. For somebody who went into the prison system at age 16. Like, wow. Yeah. All right. Matt's telling me to hurry up. So moving on to Damien Eccles and Lori Davis. They are now currently living in New Orleans and he's taken up martial arts. He's an author of several books and he's fighting to get his conviction overturned. Well, not just his, but every, all three of them. Um, he really wants to prove his innocence, but also find the person responsible so that they can be tried and convicted. Yeah. Uh, the West Memphis police have told them that all the evidence had been destroyed in a fire, but Eccles' defense team have actually found the evidence and gone through them. <laughs> uh, many petitions to have the DNA tested using the MVAC system have been denied, but Eccles really wants the shoelaces tested with the MVAC system. Um, he's not giving up, so he's, he's still fighting, and that's where we kind of are at today. Um, their next petition is going through, I think, the end of this month into February. But, yeah, so the end goal here is actually to see real justice for these six yeah, yeah, boys. That's, that's the biggie. Yeah. So, like, it wasn't just three lives that were ruined. In in this case, it was six, like you had said. Um, there's no justice for Stevie, Michael, or, or Christopher, and there's no justice and freedom for Damien, Jason, and Jesse until this is completely, completely done. And some of the reasons why they're not doing the testing is because – the state is some of the state and the courts are saying, oh, well, the testing is for people who are sitting incarcerated. Well, no, that's not fair. They're still in. It's they're still the rule in is convicted. Yeah. Not necessarily incarcerated. And, you know, they're still in a prison constantly. Yeah. Of they have restrictions on them always. Yeah. Yeah. Matt wants the microphone. We all good? Yeah, I think so. Unless anybody has any theories. Do you have any comments, Matt? No. Really? That. I don't have any comments. Well, for one, you're super thorough, so there's not much to really left to comment on, except for how the hell do you morally convict someone who's mentally not fit to tie his shoes, uh, and then go ahead and convict not even full friends, but I'd say more so acquaintances that yeah. he was just following a story along with and that kind of thing, and... Then to convict them without any evidence. Yeah. And then to keep giving them the same judge over and over again. That was just dumb. If it was denied like twice, I would have right there gone, okay, well, this judge is not letting anything go through. Let's try another judge. Because I think everybody should have a right to an appeal. Yeah. So I looked in, I actually looked into that as to how common it's very common for the cases to always be tried by the same original judge. And part of that is because it means that a new judge doesn't have to come up on speed. Their idea is that, well, the judge is supposed to be impartial anyway, so it won't matter. But they forget human nature. But and they also forget that even through this whole trial, when you watch what the um, Paradise Lost, freaking asshole Burnett is sitting there like he's bored with his hand or his head resting on his head. Like, this is just a formality. He already had it in his head that these guys were guilty. Oh, yeah. No matter what. And you could see it on his face that he was bored as shit because he already figured this case out. Yeah. And, and that's how he continued. He treated it that way for the whole thing. Stop holding my hand, Kitty. And and the jury was was just as horrible as so they many. They need to 
really look into that oh, misconduct charge. They even they even found papers that showed that their listing of the things that they were considering. Yeah. And it showed that one of the things they were considering was the Miss Kelly um confession, confession. which was completely against everything. It was complete the rule. Even even Fogelman said your job is to listen to what was presented here, here. in this trial. Yeah. Yeah. Fogelman. Yeah. He's the prosecutor. He just wants and- the outcome that he got, but he doesn't want it that way. And and you know what also really caught me though the, a big thing was that if these boys if 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 the three teens if they had had money this would not happen. No. They were all from extremely poor backgrounds and the their defense team only had x amount of money that it could use for anything. So it couldn't hire extra experts. It couldn't do yeah. extra tests. They were so confined by money and they couldn't fight it. They did not have money. No. But if they had been middle class or upper class, I don't think this would have happened. Yeah. I, I really don't. So quick update on Dan Stinham. He's a judge now. Oh, beautiful. He was amazing. He was amazing. This guy, like he was getting like, I think it was something like $19 an hour yeah, for he was all paying of his for, work. He was paying for most of the experts that he yeah. called yeah. out of his own pocket. Yeah. Like this guy gave up so much. He And he, he kept on it. Like I... Props to him beyond belief. Yeah. yeah. He's a good dude. You're a good yeah. dude, Dan Stidham. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next week with one that's not a true crime. But Thank we God. hope we <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this one. I think Sarah worked something like seven months on this one. Seven and a half months, and I've just spent this week alone I wrote for like twenty hours straight. There you go. Sarah needs a cigarette because she just gave birth to a baby. <laughs> Have a good night, guys. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>